would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, as we are going to be reading through verses 57 through 80. 57 through 80. Now you remember that um, we have seen already two songs in Luke chapter 1. There was the song of Elizabeth, very short, but still very poignant, then the song of Mary. And now we're going to see another song, the song of Zacharias, a song of praise to God, even though uh, he is going to be celebrating his son's circumcision and the birth of his son in his old age. He is not going to be primarily praising God for the gift of a son to him, but rather the gift of a son to all of Israel. He's going to be praising him for the birth, the impending birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we turn our attention to Luke, let us go to the Lord who gave Luke his message, and let's ask for his blessing. Great God of wonders, Lord, we are so thankful for the testimony that we are about to turn to. You did not leave your people in darkness and shadow. Instead, you sent a great light to them. You visited them in their time of oppression. When they were laid low by sin, you, O Lord, delivered them out. And you are the one who continues to deliver all those whom you have loved from eternity past. We are so thankful for your saving work. We pray now, Lord, that you would be with us. I pray you would be with me. You would help me to divide your word aright. I, O Lord, am a sinful man. I have feet of clay. I cannot hope to exposit your word without your help. I need your Holy Spirit's power and illuminating grace to show me how to apply this to your people. And I know, O Lord, that while I can reach the ears of your people, perhaps, I cannot reach their hearts. Only you can do that. And I pray that you would. Will you, O Lord, please open up the hearts of those who have resisted you and cause them to be softened, to be melted by the word of the gospel. And, O Lord, for those who have already been redeemed, may these words be words of comfort to them, showing them how great your love was to a lost and dying people. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 1 and verses 57 through 80. I remind you, these are the words of the Lord. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath 
by which, uh, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In these verses that we've just read, beginning with verse 68, obviously we see uh, that third song of praise to God that I mentioned for the impending birth of Jesus Christ. This song offered up by Zacharias is historically called by the church the Benedictus, which is Latin for blessed. It's the first word in the Vulgate edition of the Bible with which Zacharias begins his prayer when his muted tongue is finally loosened. Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel. And it is the most important uh, part of this section, that, that wonderful song of praise. So I'm going to touch on verses 57 through 66 briefly, but the heart of uh, our discussion, our exposition this morning is going to be in those words of blessed song that Zacharias uttered in 68 through 80. Now, if we are going to understand Zacharias' song correctly, we must understand a concept, a very important biblical concept, and that is the concept of covenant. Covenant is undoubtedly one of the most important ideas in all of the Bible. Easton's Bible Dictionary defines covenant this way. He says it's a contract or agreement between two parties. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word berit is always thus translated. Berit is derived from a root which means to cut, and hence a covenant is a cutting with reference to the cutting or dividing of animals into two parts and the contracting parties passing between them in making a covenant. Just as an aside, you'll remember that covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15 when Abraham cut the animals in two according to the Lord's command and then the Lord passed between the pieces like a burning fiery furnace. Now the corresponding word in the New Testament to that Hebrew berit for covenant is diatheke. It means covenant as well. And in the Bible a covenant can be between tribes or between nations or between men but the most important covenants in the Bible are between God and man. They are a promise of God's favor to men. And covenants usually came with a sign, a reminder of the covenant promises of God. That's the important thing. God covenants, he promises to do certain things, and then he gives men reminders because he remembers that we are weak. Our memories tend to fade. Now, for instance, he made a covenant, didn't he, with Noah and through him, with all mankind, never again to drown the world in a flood. And what was the sign? that he gave of that covenant to remind us of his promise. A rainbow. So whenever we see the rainbow, we should remember the goodness of God in promising never again to flood the world, never again to do that kind of thing. Uh, when uh, he entered into a covenant with Abraham, he gave him another sign, a sign that he was apply, to apply to himself and to all of the male servants in his household and then to his descendants. And what was that sign? Do you remember? 
It was the sign of circumcision. Very good. You guys know these things. So you'll recall that Zechariah had been struck deaf and dumb. The angel Gabriel had visited him as he was ministering in the temple at the altar of incense. Uh, but Zechariah, when he had heard that promise that he would have a child with his wife Elizabeth in their old age, with her past the uh, time of menopause, it seemed impossible. And he asked for a sign from the Lord. But in this case, he was doubting in doing so. Now, after he had been struck dumb, that is unable to speak because he had doubted, he has seen his wife go to term and deliver their child, and now it's the eighth day, the day upon which these children, these male children of uh, the Jews were circumcised. He is about to receive the sign of the covenant. John will have applied to him a sign that's meant to remind them of the everlasting promise between God and his people. If you would, turn with me back to Genesis 17 and verse 7 so we can see that promise when it was given. And keep in mind, this is almost 2,000 years or more before the time of the coming of Christ to his people. So Genesis 17, then I'm going to start reading at verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan is an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Before that, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God had given the same promises to Abraham. He had given them before he gave the sign of the covenant, and he had said to him, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He had promised Abraham that from his descendants would come the one who would be the blessing to all the nations, the light to the Gentiles, the one whom we know now as the Lord Jesus Christ. God saves the name of Christ. Literally, Yeshua means God saves. He is the salvation of his people. And here we see God keeping that uh, covenant promise. Amongst men, uh, we make promises and, and perhaps they fade away. It would be very odd if somebody who had told you that they would be your bestie always in second grade, you know, they called you up and said, I remember that promise I made to you. I'm still your bestie. I want you to know that even if you don't give me the Twinkie you promised, and so on. But God never forgets his promises. They go on forever. He is the promise keeper par excellence. Now, how was Abraham to be a blessing to all the families of the earth? Obviously, he was a blessing in that from his seed, ultimately, came the Redeemer, the same Savior of sinful men, i.e., the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the substance of the promise of God. I will eternally be your God, your rock, and your redeemer, as Psalm 1914 puts it. 
And this ordinance, uh, ordinance of circumcision, this sign is a seal of that promise. It was a visible sign in their flesh, a seal showing that everyone had it, uh, who had it rather, was a member of the covenant, who was under that covenant promises, and that if they fulfilled the requirement of that promise and had faith in the promised Redeemer, then they would receive the redemption that the Lord had promised and was showing through that. This is, of course, the same thing that we do when we baptize our children today. It's the same covenant of redemption that is being applied. The sign has changed in the new covenant, but the promise remains the same, the promise of the covenant of grace, a promise that goes back all the way, you remember, to Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so when we see that covenant seal being applied, we should be asking the question, have we fulfilled the requirement of the covenant? Have we come to faith in the promised Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we truly got the reality that baptism symbolizes? Baptism, an external washing with water that symbolizes the eternal, internal washing of the Holy Spirit, washing away our sins. Has that happened? Have we closed with Christ? Do we believe in the one who fulfilled the covenant promises? So John, at this point, is being circumcised. And when they circumcised their children, he, uh, it was uh, the time at which they gave them their name. They placed it upon them. And in accordance with the instruction of the angel Gabriel, and Zacharias probably related to his wife via writing, his name will be called John. The, Gab uh, the angel Gabriel told me his name will be John. Uh, Elizabeth says his name is John. John, of course, had meaning as well. Names back then, we, we give our children names these days that sound pleasant to us or we make them up as we go along. Back then, they gave their children names that meant something. So, for instance, my name is Andrew. It came, comes from andros. It means manly. And the idea is that my parents were hoping that their child would be a masculine child. I don't know if that's what they were hoping, but yeah. uh, ultimately, uh, the idea was when you gave your child a name like that, it expressed a hope, a wish, a desire, or an expression of your faith in God. And so they name their child John according to God's instructions. And John means God is merciful, a wonderful name. But the relatives who are gathered for the circumcision object. There are no Johns in our family. What are you talking about? He's got to be Zacharias Jr., not John. Elizabeth, come on. I know your, your husband's been struck dumb, but don't take advantage in this situation. But no. His name is John. Zacharias acts in obedience and declares in writing, his name is John, confirming the words that his wife, faithful Elizabeth, had spoken. And at that moment of his obedience to the command of God, what happens? Zacharias's tongue is loosened and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's enabled to praise God with prophecy. The first words that he speaks forth are words of blessing, words of benediction, good words spoken unto God. I, I remember once uh, reading an email which gave advice on how to confuse your coworkers. They had uh, things in it like put your trash can on top of your desk and label it in. Um, uh, but I think the best piece of advice that they gave was to finish every sentence with in accordance with the prophecy. So 
we will meet in the, in the um, conference room at 12 in accordance with the prophecy, etc. I'm reminded of that only because what uh, they sent out in the email jestingly as a joke is, is said by wonderful earnest, in wonderful earnest rather, uh, by Zecharias again and again. Zecharias is extolling the mercies of God, but he's not saying these things are new, they've just happened, we didn't expect them or anything like that. He is saying that everything that is happening is coming in accordance with the prophecies that were made according to the mercies of God. He is not simply doing this thing as an act of mercy to he and Elizabeth, giving them a child. He's not doing something new and unexpected. Rather, what, what Zechariah says, he, in his song, he extols the mercy of God in fulfilling the gracious promises of his covenant made with Abraham exactly as he had promised in accordance with what he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old again and again. He didn't just say it through Abraham. He sent other prophets saying that the son of righteousness, Emmanuel, God with us, God our righteousness, again and again, he told his people, he is coming. You can count on that. So this isn't some sort of new and unexpected thing coming on. This isn't a, a break with God's prior way of saving his people. It's a fulfillment of his promises, a continuation of the things that he said in the Bible, as I said, going all the way back to the fall in Genesis 3.15. So we need to remember, brothers and sisters, this is absolutely critical that there is a seamless connection between the Old and the New Testaments. They are not different stories. They are a continuation of the same story of God's redeeming mercy from the very beginning. They are two parts of that same story of redemption. We have redemption promised in the Old Testament and redemption accomplished in the New. And so what is happening here is Zechariah is giving a, a wonderful recounting of how these prophecies are now in that very moment being fulfilled one commentator puts it very well, I think, when he says, Zechariah gathers together the echoes of the Old Testament period and fuses them to a new outpouring of jubilant hope and faith. Now, why is this so very important that we remember that the Old and New Testaments tell the same story? Because that is something that the devil doesn't want us to remember. He wants us to discard the Old Testament. And he has had great success in causing people to do that time and time again. I don't know if you remember, but last year, or if you even heard about it, but megachurch pa uh, pastor Andy Stanley, and this is a sad story because I, Charles Stanley was a, was a faithful Southern Baptist preacher, and he was actually used in, in my redemption. After I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I was listening to Christian radio all the time, and I always used to listen to Charles Stanley as I was driving home on occasion. And um, his son, unfortunately, Andy Stanley, is not cut from the same cloth. Andy is desperately trying to, uh, he's in the process of, of adding modern sexual anarchy to 19th century liberal Christianity and, and packaging it as something new and wonderful and loving. Well, he made big news last year when he told Christians that they literally, he used this phrase, must unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. He preached and I quote, unhitching the Old Testament from the new is liberating 
from men and women who are drawn to the simple message that God loves you so much that he sent his son to pave the way to a relationship with you. It's liberating for people who need and understand grace, who need and understand forgiveness, and it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic, the worldview, and the values system depicted in the story of ancient Israel in describing the message that he preached that day, his church said, if you were raised on a version of Christianity that relied on the Bible as the foundation of faith, a version that was eventually dismantled by academia or the realities of life, maybe it's time for you to change your mind about Jesus. This, brothers and sisters, is exactly the message of 19th century liberalism. Well, we can't believe the Old Testament, and it's got, you know, all of this anger at sin and sacrifices and weird rituals, and, you know, they, they're not happy about homosexuality and things like that. Well, that, that's not in keeping with the modern age. We need to wave that away. We're just going to have only Jesus. We'll have Jesus. He appears in a vacuum out of nowhere, and he dies for what? What does he die for exactly? To show us he loves us. Okay, let's say you're fishing at the end of a pier and a man comes running up to you and says, look how much I love you, and he dives in the water and drowns. What do you think about that man? You're a nutcase, okay? It's only in the context of our situation as it's unfolded to us in the Old Testament the fall and the inability of man to redeem himself, to keep the law of God, that we understand why the sacrifice of Jesus was so important. You can't save yourself from your sins, therefore I must. You can't keep the law of God, therefore I must in your place. And then give you this as a gift. The Old Testament makes that clear. And Zacharias, and as we go through the gospel according to Luke, and all the gospel preachers, they make that clear. This is all in accordance with what God had shown us in the Old Testament. To unhitch our faith from, quote, the Old Testament is to unhitch our faith from the necessity of our salvation. To make it something empty and meaningless, fading. Do you wonder why the mainline churches are emptying? Because they've unhitched their faith from the Bible. There is no point to the gospel. People woke up in the morning and said, if Jesus loves me unconditionally all the time, no matter what I do, no matter what I believe, why do I have to get up early on Sunday morning? I might as well just live the life that I want to live. There's nothing to be saved from. Sin isn't real. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, that's not the message of the gospel. Old and New Testament. The message is God saves sinners, sinners like you and me. And without the Old Testament, I mean, it's like saying we don't really need, uh, I mean, this is a ridiculous example, we don't really need the Hobbit, the Fellowship of the Ring, or the Two Towers. Let's just start with the Return of the King. We'll start at the Siege of Gondor. Uh, you know, there are these two hobbits. For some reason, they're in this awful place, and there's this ring. Who knows what, you know, I mean, if, okay, yeah, we get to the end of the story, but we don't understand why. Why are they there? Who are these people? And so on. The Old Testament makes that clear. You cannot unhitch your faith from the Old Testament and still have a reasonable faith, a true faith. So as we look at the Gospels, remember that saying of Christ. He's talking about marriage, but it's just as true of Old and New Testament. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
Two-thirds of the Bible is contained in the Old Testament. We desperately need it. There are over, and this is very important, this is another reason why. Why would the devil want the, the Old Testament thrown out? Because there are so many prophecies of the coming of Christ that were fulfilled. Prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled is the way it works. And so therefore he wants them gone, all of these prophecies of the coming of Christ. But more than that, the entire Old Testament points to Christ. He is the fulfillment of all that was promised, all that was prophesied, all that was foreshadowed. It is simply the case that without the Old Testament, what Zacharias is singing makes no sense. We need to remember that. Now, we can divide Zechariah's song itself into two parts. In verses 68 through 75, he rejoices over the fulfillment of the covenant promises. All the prophecies that were in the old concealed that are now being revealed. Uh, I, I think it was Warfield who said that the Old Testament was like a room beautifully furnished but dimly illuminated. In the New Testament, the lights are switched on. And you see all that was only dimly revealed. Then the second part of his song is verses 76 through 79, which deal with the calling and the future ministry of John the Baptist. Now, in verse 69, he speaks of the horn. Uh, that is, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The horn was where the power, they felt, of an animal was concentrated. So all the redeeming power of God is concentrated in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah Redeemer. And then in verse 70, we are told now is the time of the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. He is the one whom the law and the prophets spoke of and pointed forward to. Uh, and Jesus himself made that very clear. Another reason why we mustn't get rid of the Old Testament is because all of the Old Testament speaks of him. He sought to teach us that. You remember in Luke 24, where he's walking with those two disciples who are going to Emmaus after his resurrection. They don't recognize him until they eat and drink with him later on. But in verse 44, we read, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Jesus himself was teaching that he is present in every page of the Old Testament. Therefore, we can and we must preach Christ whenever we open the Old Testament. It's not a book of morals, brothers and sisters. This was the practice of the apostles. It was the practice of, of Paul in Rome. In Acts 28, we remember uh, in verse 23, so when they had pointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. In the New Testament era, when the apostles were preaching the Lord Jesus Christ, the book they were using to prove what they were saying, to show that everything about him was true, was the Old Testament. They would open up to those prophecies and say, look and see how Christ has fulfilled them. So salvation is not merely, and this is also very important, the salvation that God was bringing at this time was not from the people who the Jews thought were their enemies. The people whom the Jews thought they were their enemies were the Romans, the Gentiles, the oppression, the, the, the oppressors in the oppressed-oppressed dynamic that they lived in would have been the Romans. But that wasn't the real enemy. The real enemies that Christ came to free them from were their eternal enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Remember that. 
What we need is a supernatural religion that frees us from our true enemies, the enemies that lay within, the enemy in our own hearts, sin. We need deliverance from that which will sink us lower than the grave, to use Bunyan's phrase. Now, in part two, John's ministry we see would be the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 40 and verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the, the prophet John, the last great prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, or more properly, John the baptizer. Uh, he would be the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When a king was approaching a village, um, roads in, in the olden days were not particularly good. One of the great reminders I have whenever I go uh, to Uganda is to thank the Lord for Macadam, uh, for road surfacing. Once you go out of the main cities in Uganda, there are so many areas that are just dirt road or roads that were put down in 1960 or 1970 and have not been dealt with since then. It's just one long interconnected series of potholes. This was the case in the, old, uh, the olden days. In the ancient uh, world, a road would quickly fall into disrepair unless it was built by the Romans. They were famous for the quality of their roads. But what would happen was if you knew a king was approaching a city, you didn't want his, his chariot or his horse to stumble or be tossed about because he might arrive at your village or your city in a rather foul mood. So what they would do is they would leave the city and they would finish the road. They would fill in the potholes. They would straighten things and tidy them up. John is literally saying, I am the forerunner, the one who has come to make the way of Christ easy, to prepare the way for him, to let people know he's coming, to be his messenger. And this preparation of John was necessary because the, of the terrible problem that the people had come to, which was the, the wrong assumption. They were waiting for a worldly ruler. They were waiting for a great David's greater son, a new king. Uh, they wanted to be freed from the oppression of the Romans and the Gentiles. We are righteous, they thought, particularly the Pharisees. They are the dogs, the unclean ones. So John comes before them preaching the power of the law in convicting them of their sin and telling them that they had no hope except in Jesus Christ. In essence, saying what Isaiah had said in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he will drive them to God. Now this is something that is still necessary today, brothers and sisters. A good gospel preacher, what does he do? He does something, he does a twofold thing. First, a good gospel preacher convicts men of their sins. He opens up the law to show them that they have no righteousness of their own, that they are desperately in need of relief and not in need of relief from taxes or oppression or bad grades or whatever it is that they, they're struggling with in the material world, that they're desperately in need of salvation from their sin problem. That is what you do. You show them without, without Christ, you are without hope. You're headed to hell. And then the good gospel preacher points the way to salvation as John did. You remember later on, he is going to say to his disciples, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First he's going to tell them they're sinners and then he's going to show them the way of salvation. That's what a good gospel preacher does. He shows men the way of salvation. In this case, he's going to point them to the, in, in this version of the Bible, it's the day spring, a better, a better um, 
translation is actually the dawn or the sunrise. That is what Jesus is. He is the, uh, the one spoken of in Malachi 4.2. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. These were people who were spiritually dead. They were walking in darkness, and now God sends them a great light The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on these living in the land of shadow of death. A light has dawned, Isaiah 9-2. So what is the peace that Jesus brings? Well, Jesus brings peace with God, reconciliation with God. Those who have been justified by faith, they have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it in Romans 5-1. Not a peace that we earn or a peace that we deserve but a peace that flows from the the love of God. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Jesus came into the world to reconcile us to God, save us from our sins, and then make it possible for us to worship him, and not just for time, but for eternity. That is the substance, brothers and sisters, of the covenant promises. That is the fulfillment of them, that through faith in the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Sent One, the Promised One, Jesus, you can be redeemed from sins that you could never pay for yourself, not in an eternity of trying. Now, the question that I have for you is, do you, unlike so many Americans today, do you understand who your real enemies are? We can point to all of these nations that we perceive as enemies, to groups, to classes, to to various men or individuals. We can say, this is my enemy. But is that the truth? Are they really your enemies? in the sense of these are the people who are your biggest problem. They stand against you. They block the way to heaven for you. And the answer is no. Iran may be a problem, but it's not Iran that's gonna stop you from getting to heaven, I have to tell you. The real enemies that you have to deal with each and every day are the world and the flesh and the devil. And one of those enemies you carry around with you every single day, and that is your own flesh. Jesus came to free you from the dominion of these enemies. He came to set you loose. He is the great light who breaks your darkness. Now, I speak these words to you as a preacher, certainly, somebody who is called upon to do that, but I have to tell you, I know the reality of these things because I was one of those sinners who lived in darkness. I was somebody who was totally under its dominion. I didn't struggle with sin, because sin ruled over me. I just sinned. It was my very nature. And I was well on my way to hell when God intervened, when he opened my eyes, and when he showed me my Redeemer, when he showed me the Prince who had come to deliver the peace message from God, the Lord Jesus. And I pray that this day, if you have not yet closed with Christ by faith, if you have not yet accepted that gracious offer of peace and reconciliation with the Lord, that you would accept that this day, that you would stop struggling. The life of sin, and I know this from experience, is very miserable. It never surprises me when when a natural man says they are depressed 
You go to the super, well, maybe you go to the supermarket or you go to Walgreens or something like that. I I'm, I'm always find myself standing in line and I, I know it's wretched, I can't help it. I always look at the, you know, the headlines on the National Enquirer and, uh, and People and so on and Bigfoot spotted in outer space, UFO, et cetera, and um, that, that kind of thing. But one of the things that you see all the time on these gossip magazines is how wretchedly unhappy celebrities are how they're constantly getting divorced, how they have everything that we're supposed to want, wealth and fame and power, and yet they're in rehab again. They can't find something that takes away their discontent. They are the disconsolate of the world, stumbling from partner to partner, drug to drug, and they never find peace. Why? Because they have a God-shaped hole at the center of their lives that can't be filled with anything else. They try, they push in sexual immorality, they push in drugs, they push in parties, they push in celebrity fame and acclaim, they push in vacations. These people can afford everything, and yet nothing makes them happy. And you'll find that in your life. If you're living without Christ, it's just cycles of depression. That was the case with me. We may uh, seek after counterfeit joys and push them back. But ultimately, the only place you will find true peace and reconciliation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you found him. Let's go before him today. God, our Father, I do thank you so much for sending the light that we needed in a time of darkness. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sins and to give us a righteousness that we ourselves could never obtain. Lord, you did this not for friends, but for enemies. Your love to us is amazing. And when we ask, why do you love us so much? Your answer is that you love us because you love us. We thank you for your covenant promises that you have always been faithful to fulfill. Help us now to embrace the Redeemer, the Messiah, the center of those covenant promises, the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.